Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this webinar that's hosted by the Migration Policy Institute's National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy. My name is Margie McHugh. I'm the director of the center, and I'll be moderating today's session. We really appreciate the, uh, the great interest that's been shown in this topic. We've got people spanning many, many time zones and even continents who are on the call. So uh, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening uh, to all of you, depending on uh, where you currently are listening in from. Before we get going, I just want to go through a few of uh, basic logistics for the call. Uh, so, first of all, you can see here on the screen, if you have any problems access, accessing the webinar, uh, you can reach us by email at events at migrationpolicy.org, or you can call us at 202-266-1929. Uh, we have people who are, on, uh, who are at the ready uh, to answer any questions you might have or resolve any problems you might be having with the platform. Um, secondly, we really appreciate it if you use the chat function on the screen throughout the webinar to write your questions. It just helps, I guess it helps me in particular <laughs> to, um, to line up and the different questions and see what are some of the similarities and um, uh, kind of help us get through as many of them as possible. So please, um, it's never too early to be using that Q&A chat function. You can also email any questions to events at migrationpolicy.org, um, or you can tweet them to at migrationpolicy, hashtag MPI discuss. And yes, um, we um, uh, often get questions about whether the slides and the audio from the webinar are going to be available. So rest assured that they'll be up there on our website. Um, uh, you can see there migrationpolicy.org forward slash events. So, as I said, I'm Margie McHugh, and um, my main role is moderating uh, today's session. I'm stepping in for my colleague, Del Delia Pompa, who's Senior Education Fellow with our center for many years now. She was pulled away uh, at the last minute by an urgent matter. Um, but um, we're happy that, um, that we've got Julie Sugarman, uh, who is the lead um, uh, author of the report that we'll be discussing today, and um, she's um, uh, she's ready with all of her uh, her notes, and I think very pleased that we're finally getting this policy brief out into the universe. But I'll say a little more about her in a minute. Um, I'll just say for myself that uh, that in addition to supervising the overall um, uh, portfolios that are that exist within our uh, center. I also focus a good deal uh, in my other time on research, technical assistance, and capacity building efforts that are focused on early childhood education and care system building uh, efforts and policies, and also in the workforce, uh, adult education and workforce training arena, of course, all focused on um, immigrants and refugees and their families. Um, Here's a quick look for the, for any of you who might be new to our work. Uh, we have a we have a very big investment in education pipeline issues, early childhood K um, K16, adult ed, workforce development, um, language access, and uh, and also just trying to improve the governance of integration policy. Um, if any of you have questions about that work, uh, always happy to 
um, uh, get be in touch with you um, about any of those areas and your potential interest in them. So just in terms of setting up uh, the conversation today about the, the policy brief that we're releasing, uh, first of all, of course, it must be said that, um, that there's a lot else going on in the world right now that's affecting English learners and their families. And I'll just say that there's a great deal of work that's been underway in our shop, uh, led by Julie and Delia uh, and uh, Melissa Lazarine, um, all looking at the impacts of the uh, COVID-19, the move to remote instruction, the huge um, disparities that that's been making more visible in terms of the experience of English learners and also um, their families uh, who very often uh, their parents are essential workers and, um, and are uh, very often not in the position to supervise home instruction uh, the way many other um, parents uh, might be in a position to help out with um, big disparities in digital access, et cetera, et cetera. So rest assured that there's a lot going on in our shop around those, and we'd be happy to uh, hear from any of you who are involved in that. We'll be getting out. We're trying to wrap together into one policy brief that we'll get out in about a month. Uh, what, we've been, what we've been dialoguing with folks at the federal level and on Capitol Hill about, um, as well as many folks who are in state education agencies or closer to the local level. So obviously we've got one big crisis there affecting English learners. And then of course, um, this is all unfolding, everything that's been, um, that's been happening uh, due to the pandemic um, has been unfolding now against the backdrop of the massive racial justice demonstrations that are seeking a dismantling of racist policing and other, um, other policies that have resulted in a lot of, uh, you know, in, in a long history of, um, of disparities, uh, racial disparities, and, um, and really a lot of soul searching about what that means uh, for policies going forward. So, you know, all of these things are a huge uh, part of the context right now. And this policy brief is really very tightly focused and specialized. And I'll just say that it's part of a body of work center that um, has always been looking at accountability for quality and uh, quality and relevance of instruction for English learner students. This was, uh, this is part of the ongoing uh, questions around implementation of the country's, um, the country's governing education, K-12 education law, um, every, every student succeeds that. And we've been working with a good number of you who are on the call uh, or have been in conversation with you over the years around this issue about the use of native language assessments um, for English learners. And this, this piece uh, that Julie's gonna be talking about in a moment is uh, very much just trying to explain the technical aspects of this particular issue. Um, it gets down in the weeds um, around uh, the implementation of that but of course, we all know, um, any of us who have been working in the policy arena uh, for a while know that the decisions about, um, about what happens when, when you really get closer to the ground in terms of trying to implement um, uh, policy openings like this, um, that questions around what's offered to whom and you know, what sort of capacity exists and, and what are the costs 
of doing these things, they all play into decision making, which is uh, very much what was driving us in pulling together um, this particular brief. So I'm going to turn it over to Julie in a moment. Uh, many of you are familiar with Julie's work. She's been a senior policy analyst with our center for a good number of years now. And um, she's tightly focused on issues related to immigrants uh, and English learner students. And uh, any of you who have followed her publications know that she's got one suite of products that's very much trying to explain for folks who are, who are um, just coming into issues related to English learners what the overall policy and funding and legal context is um, for uh, English learner instruction. Um, and then, uh, and then at the same time, uh, she's got a portfolio of work that goes much more deeply into key areas, um, uh, deeper research into um, some of the really big questions that uh, that are very topical, um, both as a result of the Every Student Succeeds Act and other other legal uh, other um, issues in broad policy that we come up against, but then also just the same question of how differently things look because of uh, state and local capacities uh, for doing what uh, what we all uh, what we what we believe to be um, good practice uh, good policy and practice for actually meeting the needs of this very diverse population. Um, so Julie, before I turn it over to you, let me say one more time, please everyone. Send in your questions via um, either that events at migrationpolicy.org email account, um, tweet them uh, to us, or please use the chat function. Uh, as Julie as Julie speaks, it would be great to be lining up uh, lining up questions so that we can make the use of the time, make the best use of the time we have together. So with that, Julie, I think I still have control, and there you go. I'm switching it over to you. Great, thank you so much, Margie. Um, and I'm, I'm really um, so glad to be able to share this work with you. I think it's a, as Margie said, it's a very um, technical sort of wonky topic, but you know, the more you get into it, the more you see how it connects so many aspects of instruction and assessment and equity and all of the things that we really care about at a top level. So um, I'm gonna um, talk about the sort of some of the technical aspects and the definitions up front here, but then we'll get into uh, some of what, what it means and, and especially what it means right now with uh, all of the other things going on. Um, so as I, let me start a little bit with some definitions. What are native language assessments? Um, what we are talking about in this paper are tests of academic content, um, generally language arts, math, science, and social studies. Um, and these are tests, um, na native language assessments are given in the context of accountability systems. Um, where at a broader level, students are in the U.S. are tested um, in uh, language arts and math every year from third through eighth grade and once in high school, and then three times across that uh, series of years uh, in science. Um, so, you know, these are, we're talking about um, sort of a, a, a little bit of a narrow um, usage here of, of the term native language assessments, because we're not really talking about language proficiency assessments where it might tell you how well you speak um, Spanish or, or Chinese or, or a language uh, like that. Um, we're also not really going to get into the use of native language assessments for special education identification, although that is another really important issue and um, 
with, within the universe here of, of native language assessments. But what we're really focused on here is um, the use of these kinds of assessments relative to state accountability for um, school performance. And the way that we defined uh, native language assessments are written or scripted oral translation, uh, written uh, translation or scripted oral translations or transadaptation. Um, we'll get into what transadaptation means uh, a little bit later, but the basic idea is that a translation is just a straight um, you know, translation from what it says in English to what it says in, in another language. A transadaptation is taking into consideration things about the language um, and the cultural um, background of students and, th and that sort of thing. So it's not an exact word-for-word -word translation. Um, and sometimes these uh, um, these tests may be designed from scratch. Also, they're not they may not be direct translations. Um, these native language assessments that we're talking about fit in a broader set of accommodations that exist for students taking um, tests, uh, standardized tests. These include other kinds of native language supports uh, and sometimes English supports, you know, like dictionaries or clarifying um, and. Uh, I, I will note that sometimes it's not clear what states mean or, or um, different systems mean when they're talking about, oh, we provide a native language assessment, but what they may mean is uh, we provide a glossary of, of words that students might, meet, might mean. So um, as Leslie Villegas, who I, I want to um, give a shout out to, who did um, amazing work um, bringing together the, what states were doing, as, as she and I were doing this work, we, were, um, we noticed that there were some times when states would say, um, we do this or we do that. And, you know, if you dig in a little bit um, deeper, you're, you have to really sort of figure out, are they talking about native language assessments in the same way? Um, there's also accommodations that are used, uh, and, and this is also true of students with disabilities often get um, accommodations like this that modify the testing conditions. So uh, very frequently a native or a, uh, an English learner would be allowed to take more time because it, of course, you know, if they're taking a test in English, it would take time, more time than it would if they were a fluent English speaker to uh, read the passages and answer the questions and so on. So those are some other kinds of accommodations um, that are um, part of the uh, part of the, um, the universe here. And really the, the whole reason for offering accommodations is to ensure meaningful participation of all students. Um, because we want to make sure that if we're giving a student a test, that it's reflecting really what they know and can do, and that we're not measuring things that are outside um, the, the ideas that we want to actually um, know how, you know, the, the academic content that we want to know that they've learned. So drawing from that, um, the Every Student Succeeds Act, or ESSA, uh, as well as its predecessors have um, laid out a number of guidelines around, obviously around assessment, but even around this um, issue of native language assessment, um, which is one of the reasons why we got interested in this as, as ESSA was um, passed in 2015 and it sort of raised the, um, the issue and, and um, got people interested in native language um, assessments since it was in one of the things that states had to account for in their plans. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Um, so in ESSA, as was true in No Child Left Behind, all students must be included in assessment. Um, there's very few exceptions um, in terms of who um, can sit out. And, and the reason that was done is because for a long time, um, 
schools were really just testing a certain segment of students. They weren't testing English learners. They weren't testing students with disabilities. Uh, and it really sort of let them off the hook for how those students were doing. And, and we didn't really know how those students were doing. So the reason that um, accountability measures include all of these students now is um, to make sure that schools are held accountable for instruction and so we can track the progress of different subgroups of students. And what it actually says in ESSA with regard to native language assessments is it suggests that English learners who are part of assessment systems should be assessed in the language and form most likely to yield accurate data. Um, so it doesn't actually require the use of native language assessments, but it does um, suggest it strongly. And um, as part of the plans that states wrote for um, how they would comply with ESSA, they had to answer a few questions about what languages were spoken in their state and uh, what um, native language assessments were available. So um, th that's sort of the policy piece of why, uh, you, why use uh, native language assessments. Now, there hasn't been a lot of research on this. There's been some amount on accommodations more broadly, but there have been a few um, research studies that have, sh that have looked specifically at native language assessments. And what it looks like the uh, research is saying is that Spanish versions of reading and math tests improved results for English learners receiving instruction in Spanish and or with low English proficiency. So for uh, students who are Spanish speakers, and, and um, it's just that the, um, these research pieces only looked at Spanish and they weren't meaning to exclude anyone else. It was just that was how the, the research was designed. So for this group of students who took tests in, in reading and math and were part of these studies, if they were instructed in Spanish and or if they were English learners with low English proficiency, having a native language assessment helps them do better and, and show what they knew in math and reading than if they, than comparable students who took those tests in English. Now, we don't know exactly, you know, we don't have an exact cutoff of exactly what level of English proficiency or exactly how much instruction in what context. Um, so, you know, these are really still open questions that require uh, quite a bit more research before we really know for sure who should be taking these. But it did, um, the research that we, that we have that I'm referencing did show that students that were at higher levels of English proficiency uh, and students who were being instructed only in English did not do better if they had a uh, Spanish uh, language assessment, even if they also knew Spanish, you know, or spoke Spanish at home. So I think that's a really important piece of context. It's, you know, again, it's not totally definitive. We don't know where the boundaries are, but um, there were several um, articles that did um, show this. Now, the other piece of this uh, of the use of native language assessments, um, and some of you knew me in my former life um, where I worked on dual language programs, um, and, and how important it is for uh, instructional feedback and for equity purposes for students to be tested in both English and the partner language, the other language that's used in a dual language context. And uh, so students who are English learners in those programs, and I think students who are fluent English speakers, uh, who are no longer uh, classified as English learners or maybe who never were, could uh, benefit from 
um, taking native language assessments. This is again not something we have a ton of research on, but uh, those of us who spent a lot of time in the dual language education area have um, written for many, many years about the importance of making sure that students see that uh, it's, in, you know, oh, we're taking a test in this, so it must be important. And also um, to have the information, you know, if, if, if I studied um, math and Spanish, that I'm taking a test in Spanish um, to show how much I know about the math that I've learned in Spanish. So um, those are just a couple of, of lenses through which we, we should take a look at the research. So once a state is looking at whether it wants to offer um, a native language assessment as part of its accountability system, there's a lot of practical considerations. Um, as, I, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, which students obviously is a, is a big consideration. Um, are we going to limit it to students at um, just lower English proficiency levels or offer it to all students? Um, which uh, are we going to offer it to students no matter what their language of instruction is or just to students who are getting instruction in their native language? Um, another important consideration is students with interrupted formal education. Um, because we know that students who are coming in that are uh, two or more years behind in their uh, academic background, um, just giving them a test in their native language might not be the difference between passing or failing because they may also not be that literate in their native language um, and they may just not have the academic background to um, to perform well. So, you know, none of this, I'm, I'm not making any um, you know, proclamations about who should get things or who shouldn't get things, but just saying that it's very complicated. And so you have to sort of look at the different um, pieces of who these students are and, and what their background are uh, is in, in order to figure out which kinds of students should be taking native language assessments. Um, we'll talk in a few minutes about, um, I'll show you which states are um, testing students in their native languages in which subjects. Um, math and science are the most uh, common, which you'll see in a minute. Social studies, uh, a few states do it. Um, a bigger question has come up around language arts. I think it's clear to people, you know, math is math, and if you translate a word problem into another language, you know, you're really testing the math concepts. And, um, you know, it, it, I think it's a little bit more um, clear to people how these, how a translated math, science, or social studies test would work as opposed to language arts. Um, and um, certainly the bigger question here, not, you know, is a, a Spanish language arts assessment a useful thing, because certainly in many contexts it would be, but the question is really if a student is studying language arts in their native language and the language arts test is aligned to state standards in language arts, um, can we use that as our assessment of language arts for that student? So in other words, every student, again, as I said before, from third to eighth grade and once in high school is tested on their mastery of language arts standards. And so the question here is whether a test of native language arts can be equivalent or, um, you know, should be used in place of, a, of an English language arts uh, ass assessment for some or all students. Um, the one thing I'll say about that is, is something that is, is very complicated and, and um, I actually have yet to find a really, really good description of the distinction between language development and language arts. Um, language arts standards that students study are not necessarily about the language itself. 
there's a piece of that that is language specific, but really the, if you look at a set of language art standards, the vast majority of those standards are gonna be about the use of language. So um, how does this author um, get their main point across? Um, what, uh, what does irony look like in this situation? How do you compare and contrast? You know, those things are, those things go across language. So you could talk about those kinds of standards. You could demonstrate your knowledge of those standards in any language. And that's why a lot of folks are looking to um, these uh, native language arts assessments as being equivalent to an English language arts test and that they should be offered as an alternative to, a, uh, to an English language arts test for students that would just simply not be able to demonstrate their knowledge of language arts um, standards in English because their, their English proficiency isn't, isn't quite there yet. Uh, another practical consideration is which languages. Um, ESSA required states to list which languages were present to a significant extent and states were allowed to define what that meant to them. Um, so the expectation was set that it would be uh, that, you know, it would be reasonable to offer native language assessments in languages present to a significant extent. But you do, as a policy question, have to consider what about everybody else? And, you know, if we do it, you know, for Spanish, which is in most states the, the, the greatest number of students, um, what are we offering uh, in terms of accommodations for other students? So we get into some, some issues there as well. Um, I don't want to get too deeply in the design issues. We do um, get, get, um, talk a little bit about transla uh, translation versus transadaptation um, in the paper. So um, if you want to know more about that, you can check that out there. Um, but there are um, a number of questions in terms of the design, thinking about what is the um, level of equivalence between the English and the native language version. Um, and, and there's various solutions around that. I, again, I don't want to go down that. Um, that road too far right now. Um, and another question is whether you will present bilingual or monolingual. So a, a native language assessment could be something where you have, if it's a paper test, you have Spanish on the left and English on the right. Now, a lot of these tests have now moved online and we'll talk more about that as well. Um, but since students are taking their tests on computers now anyway, a lot of them have these options to toggle back and forth between English and Spanish. So instead of seeing them simultaneously, one on one side and one on the other, you could read a question and decide, oh gosh, I don't really understand that. Let me read that in my native language and click something and read it in your native language and then answer the question. Um, and then of course, another design question is whether um, for open-ended questions, you know, an multiple choice, you just click the, the option, but if it's open-ended, will students be allowed to um, answer in their native language or not? So that's just another uh, question that comes up. Um, implementation, once you've made the decision to offer this and uh, laid out your rules about who will be um, eligible, you still need a process for um, schools to identify those students. And, you know, there's always going to be education cases, so um, states may want to provide um, guidance on how um, schools can make those decisions about who should take it. Um, decisions around reporting results. Um, if the uh, native language assessment is considered to be technically equivalent to the English um, version, you can combine the results of um, the native language and English versions, but it may also be interesting to report them separately. And um, there may be other um, things that need to be done in the background with regard to reporting um, 
to, to you know, in, ensure that things are equivalent. So, um, again, we get that more into that in, in the paper, but I just wanted to raise those as issues. And, of course, the issue that we always worry about is capacity and cost. Um, you know, these uh, assessments require resources for developing and for scoring. Um, it can vary a lot depending on how um, which which subject it is and in how many languages and I mean the the, the cost burden varies enormously here, um, but it certainly is um, you know an important thing to take into consideration for states that are uh, looking to offer um, these native language assessments. So with that, I just want to show you um, the map that we have showing. Um, this is mostly based on what was what states reported in their ESSA plans, but with a little bit of um, checking up afterwards um, in terms of what states offer native language assessments. In the upper left hand corner, you can see the map showing which offer math tests in a, a native language. 31 states plus DC offer um, math and 21 of those offer um, also offer science. Um, so those two are, are linked there, and you can see that the, the, the most um, states that, you know, that offer native language assessments, it's in, it's in math and science. Um, a few states offer uh, a native language assessment in social studies, and four states offer native language assessments in reading or language arts. Um, only Colorado is, uh, Colorado is the only state that offers all four of those domains. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to mention is that um, most of these states, uh, we go into more detail on the languages that are offered. Most of these states offer tests only in um, Spanish, but um, there are uh, three states, Michigan, New York, and Washington that offer, um, their, that offer uh, tests in multiple languages. And then there's several states that uh, Hawaii offers um, its uh, assessments in Hawaiian as part of its uh, Hawaiian language revitalization uh, program, and um, a couple other program, a couple other states that we found have um, uh, the there isn't a, a, a concordance between the language that was present to a significant extent and the language and the language that they offer, which is Spanish. So um, for the most part, um, what's offered is Spanish. Um, the other reason that math is so um, frequently offered is because a lot of these um, states that you see um, on the in the upper left side use one of the shared assessments, PARC or Smarter Balance, and those two organizations offer their test as a Spanish uh, version. So it's sort of easy um, uh, for, for states to opt in, and in fact, all of the states that use those math tests do allow students to take them in Spanish, and, and why wouldn't they? Because it's a, it's it's something that's easy again for them to opt into. So that's sort of the lay of the land of um, which which states are offering native language assessments. Um, I know a lot of states are having conversations right now, or, or maybe were up until a few months ago, about deepening their use um, or starting to use more. Um, Florida, California, Illinois, I know we're all um, states where those conversations were happening. So um, there's a lot of um, interest in this, I think, and, and um, people will be wanting moving forward to, to continue to have that conversation about whether their state is offering a native language assessment uh, and how they can increase that. 
Thanks, Julie. And thanks everyone who's been uh, writing in with additional questions. Um, so, so Julie, I think first of all, um, uh, everybody, uh, those of you who are um, who are joining with the screen, you can see events at migrationpolicy.org, or you can tweet questions to at migrationpolicy hashtag MPI discuss. Um, but so, Julie, just a few um, very quick uh, questions, just that are kind of frame setting. Um, um, the first is, are we talking about formative um, interim um, summative assessments and was the research based on um, public schools um, or were uh, private or charter schools included and or pre-K? So maybe just do a quick top line about, um, you know, the definition, I guess, that um, uh, the types of assessments that we're talking about. Right. We're talking here about the summative end-of-year um, exams in language arts, math, science, and social studies. And so it really is, a, um, this, this project came out of other work that we were doing on ESSA and on ESSA plans. Um, every state had to submit a plan talking about how um, its practices would align with the new law. Um, and this was one of the things that came up. And so that was really what got us interested in, in working on this. So what we're, what we're talking about is whether states are offering this at all. And I should mention, just because a state offer it, offers it doesn't mean every jurisdiction within that state does. Um, private schools don't take these tests at all, so that's sort of out. But, um, you know, with any accommodation, there's no requirement that you must offer any particular thing, the, the state will say, we allow the following things and they'll give you a whole long laundry list. But then as a district or as a school or as an individual teacher, you decide what is appropriate for any individual student. So um, if you're in a state that has uh, one of these and, and you haven't ever seen it and you don't know why your students aren't taking it, um, that, that, that's another question for you to ask. Right, and that, you know, I, I would just go back to um, what I was saying earlier that um, that our uh, our shop has a big interest in the accountability provisions uh, of ESSA and that, you know, basically, um, basically we're talking about the um, types of assessments that are required for accountability purposes under ESSA. Um, so, um, so Julie, I just think given, given the um, like kind of the uproar about uh, what we've all seen with the pandemic, um, let me just um, let me just uh, uh, draw from some of the questions and quickly ask you about uh, to take a quick peek around the corner, if you can, looking ahead. So, you know, we've been hearing that uh, because of the shutdown. I hope it's not like the first shutdown and we're going for another shutdown, uh, but, you know, given that the given that uh, we had this period of shutdown due to the virus and state tax receipts fell so tax and other receipts um, fell so dramatically, uh, there's a lot of kind of ominous uh, talk about the budget uh, cuts that we might be in for next year and well, at least next year. Um, but anyway, given you, you've talked a little bit about how um, uh, creating and administering the native language assessments can be relatively resource intensive. Uh, do you have anything, um, uh, do you want to, is there something you can share about how to think about positioning and ask like this, um, you know, in a time of uh, potential 
um, cuts in, you know, cuts in state budgets generally and in K-12 in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think just to set the context a little bit, it's not clear what the, what will be the status of assessment and accountability this past year, um, for anyone who doesn't know, um, states were allowed not to give any of these tests. They, they um, we're not, again, we're not talking about the English language proficiency, which is something else, but the tests of language arts, math, science, and social studies, no state gave their end of year test in this, this year. Um, and of course, we really don't know what's gonna happen next year. We don't know if these will be offered next year or not. So um, the question of timing, of course, comes up because this may or may not be an issue for um, the immediate next year. But, um, you know, I think on the one hand, we do have to have some hard conversations about priorities. I mean, clearly, um, you know, there's a, a pretty big contingent of folks who are, um, who are very laser focused on providing um, resources and, and, and prioritizing resources in the classroom. And I definitely think that that is um, an appropriate conversation for us to be having right now. And, and you know, it is, it is a little bit hard to think about something, um, if, you know, Again, the, 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 that the scope of the resources needed varies, but, um, you know, but on the other hand, if we're going to have an assessment system, it needs to be fair. And I think that this is a really important piece of um, what goes into uh, a, a fair and accurate uh, accountability system. So um, there's ways that states can maybe collaborate together as, they're, uh, as they've done with the Park and Smarter Balanced Math Tests. Um, you know, are there ways that they can collaborate to create native language assessments in other areas? Um, are there foundations that might be able to support some of these translations? I think there's things that we can do as we ask about these um, to help states see um, the feasibility uh, in addition to just the, you know, the difficulty and the resources needed. All right, well, so I can hear already, even before you write some of you who wrote in your questions, because um, there's a cluster of questions that relate to um, in, um, broadly to civil rights issues kind of, you know, that I think are both related to um, native language assessments and um, and just sort of language of instruction um, more broad or nature of instruction for else more broadly. So um, I guess like this might be this might be a longer podcast or something that uh, we should do with you, Julie, but um, so, so kind of the questions go from um, like, you know, isn't there a fairness issue that these are done for some languages and not for others? Um, what if I'm in an area, you know, or in a jurisdiction where like no native language assessment at all is offered? Like, how is that like possible and legal? And um, and then also, um, you know, if you're in a in a state that requires all instruction to be in English. Like how do we how do we take the civil rights frame we normally have and um, kind of apply it in this context where it does seem like I don't want to say it's like a bit of a free for all, but like it does seem that um, there's really not a floor of um, kind of equal treatment um, in terms of the um, use of native language assessments. So, like, can you just give us a quick explanation of the raggedy edges of what we see here? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the issue of doing things in Spanish and not others, like I said, I had this previous life of working in dual language and this came up all the time of why should we have dual language programs in Spanish when we can't do them in all languages? And, you know, my answer would be that's a great question. Um, you know, I think that it is, um, I think we do what we can. 
Um, and, and, and clearly you do need to have, there are cost considerations, there are, um, you know, considerations of, of, you know, all kinds of considerations that, that would say that, you know, if we only have one or two speakers of a language, it just doesn't make sense to create a translated assessment for them. And it's not fair, but we have a, a, a system, we have a, a, a society where we have limited resources for education, and that's, um, that's kind of where we are, and we do just have to have those really hard conversations. Um, in terms of districts not offering it, if the state does, yeah, I think this is, um, the, the actual implementation is really unclear. Um, you know, we don't have any data on how many kids actually take these tests. We don't know whether it's, we, 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 there's really, I'm not going to enumerate it because there's basically nothing that we know about it. So we, you know, what you're seeing here on the screen with the maps is kind of what we know. We don't, we just don't have any of that information. And so we don't know, um, you know, how many districts are not doing this. It, it, it's a little bit swept under the rug, to be frank, and, and it's just not something that's been, you know, one of the reasons I'm glad we're doing this is just to bring it to people's attention that this exists, um, because I think it's not known. Um, and then just really quickly on the English-only laws. Um, yes, there are laws in a number of states saying that um, education will only be used, or education will only be in English, but there are also um, civil rights issues around language access and that states or uh, agencies that get money from the federal government, which obviously all public schools do, have an obligation to, uh, to ensure that, um, that language issues are not a boundary or not a, a barrier to understanding. And so, um, you know, there really hasn't been any kind of a formal ruling on it, but um, it does seem like um, you know, the education instruction is one thing, but the assessment, um, having a native language assessment or native language accommodations um, is really an accommodation for something that you are requiring all students in school to do. So, um, you know, this, this has not been tested and I am not a lawyer, so, <laughs> you know, we gotta um, maybe look into this a little bit more, but um, I, I, I do think there are um, states that are, you know, you see on, on, on the map states that we know that are maybe less friendly to bilingual education that, that are doing it. So um, it, it can be done. Uh, so, um, so Julie, I want to shoehorn in um, a quick question, um, uh, you know, a question that I think might have a quick answer and then one that might be a slightly longer one. And um, there are a number of questions that, um, uh, that we'll also respond to um, individually um, uh, offline because some of them were um, very specific to particular state context. But first of all, one of the questions was, um, why do you think that so few of the states have um, social studies? Uh, but then the other, um, the other bigger topic is, um, you know, with the pandemic and maybe even, you know, not just what was already moved online, and you addressed that a little bit about like, who knows a little bit with what we're coming into in September, but, um, but if we are going to move even more quickly towards the use of computer-based learning and assessment, um, what do you think, uh, what do you, you, like, where do you see opportunity there, or do you see, um, yeah, how much opportunity and how much danger? So anyway, just quickly social studies and then the, you know, the, um, the kind of move towards more computer-based learning and assessment. Is there an opening there or is it mostly danger? 
Yeah, absolutely. The The reason that so few do social studies is that social studies is not a required um, subject to test. Um, a lot of, a number of states do um, offer a social studies test and use that as part of their accountability system, but many, 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 many states do not. So, um, you know, st students may or may not be taking tests, but, um, you know, it's, they, they don't count. Well, I think in, in most states, students are taking end of year tests in social studies, but if they don't count for accountability, that just sort of doesn't fall under the, um, you know, the, the aegis of what they were talking about in their ESSA plans. Um, I think the issue of technology is really interesting, and, and I think that really is one of the other reasons why it's important um, not to lose sight of this issue as a, oh boy, this is a this is too too big to think about right now. We have way, way too many other things because I think a lot of things are going to really move in the next year with regard to online learning, and I think this is one of the issues that we really need to keep an eye on. Um, you know, and there are concerns about technology and English learners more broadly, and we can talk about that another time. But um, I think with regard just to, to this narrow issue, um, technology is really unlocking a potential for um, ways to incorporate native language support and native language assessments. Um, as I mentioned, you know, with a, a toggle option, you know, there may be ways that um, native language assessments can be done more easily and, and more seamlessly as we get more technology. Um, I, I, another thing that's happening right now is there's been talk in recent years of moving away from a single end of year exam um, and having more um, ongoing assessment be part of the accountability system. And we can debate whether or not that's a good idea, but um, I do think that is, a, that is something that people, not just in the EL world, but all over the education world have been talking about and, and something I think we'll hear more about. Um, so if that happens, then the question is, okay, so if we are going to um, have a lot more online learning, what are the opportunities for having instruction and activities and assessment in native languages? And how can we build that in from the beginning as opposed to letting the tech train get 10 years down the road and then saying, oh, by the way, um, why don't we translate some of these things? But you know, it would be good to think about them up front. Um, you know, the, the slightly less optimistic um, part of that is that it could end up being uh, even more prohibitively expensive to do this. You know, states may say, you know, we're okay translating one test a year or, you know, one test times four domains and how many um, uh, length, um, grades. You know, we're okay with um, translating one test per year, but, you know, if we're going to have all of these um, uh, computer adaptive tests, and, you know, that's a huge amount to be translating and um, that, you know, could end up being a conversation that's a little bit harder to have. But um, again, I think that's just something that we need to be keeping our eyes on, um, both from the instructional point of view and from the assessment point of view um, as we um, get more um, further down the road with regard to uh, online and computer-based learning. So, and Julia, I'm just thinking with where you ended up with that, that, um, that to me, at least it's interesting. This isn't, you know, I don't spend um, a lot of my time in K-12, but it does strike me that um, there's been some interesting kind of movement and um, advocacy even from uh, folks in academia, as well as, um, uh, you know, other, some of the other professional organizations that folks would expect. but. The state contexts are just so different, and the making things happen um, is usually such a, a state-level kind of game, quote-unquote. 
that um, that I think it, it might be interesting just looking at the questions that um, we will be answering personally on email for those of you whose questions we haven't gotten to and since we're a bit over time now. Um, but it does seem like this is an area where there are um, things are on the move in a number of states and um, and where it might be helpful to be sharing more across states um, around um, how folks are moving um, the issue forward, trying to uh, trying to have more equitable approaches as well that um, that touch on a number of different uh, different language groups, and then particularly that we might expect to see um, you know a lot of new dynamics uh, in um, in what's funded in K twelve and how people are thinking about it um post the pandemic and um and so just feels very much like an area to watch but so anyway i just want to thank all of you not just for joining but like everybody i mean it's a huge number of people who stayed till the very end so we really um obviously that's a great um uh, great sign of um interest and uh you know we'd love to um stay in touch and we will absolutely get back to those of you whose questions we didn't get to and so in the meantime you can see on the screen um, how to um, how to access this? Um, the Bitly is up there. Everything will be up on our website, migrationpolicy.org forward slash events um, or forward slash integration. And uh, in the meantime, just thanks to all of you, not just for your interest, but for the great work that we know um, you're all doing and trying to do on behalf of um, immigrant and English learner kids uh, in the various systems or state contexts you're working in. So. Um, uh, Godspeed to everyone with the um, with the work that um, that they're doing. And um, Julie, thanks for a great presentation. And um, and again, uh, we'll make sure to be in touch with anybody whose questions we didn't get to um, in this portion of the um, of the webinar. Take care, everyone. Thanks again. Signing off. <laughs>